Ants. Theirs is a perfection of pure form. Everybody has his proper place and knows it. Everything they do is functional. Each foray in a zigzag line, each lifting of 32 times their own weight, each, each excavation into the Earth's core, each erection of a crumbly parapeted tower. None of these feats is a private pleasure, none of them done for the sake of skill alone. They've got a going concern down there, a full egg hatchery, a wet nursery of aphids, a trained troop of maintenance engineers, sanitation experts, a corps of hunters and butchers, an army, a queen. Each is nothing without the others, each being a part of something greater than all of them put together, a purpose which none of them knows, since each is only the one thing he does. There is a true consistency toward which their actions tend. The ants have bred and inbred to perfection. The strain of their genes that survive, survive. Every possible contingency has been foreseen and written into the plan. Nothing they do will be wrong. String Quartet by Carl Dennis. Art and life. I wouldn't want to confuse them, but it's hard to hear a string quartet without comparing it to a conversation of the quiet kind where no one tries to out-talk the other participants, where each is eager instead to share their task of moving the theme along from the opening statements to the final bar. A conversation that isn't likely to flourish when sales technicians come trolling for customers, office holders for votes, preachers for converts. Many good people among such talkers, but none engage like the voice of the string quartet in resisting the plot the plots time hatches to make them unequal, to set them at odds, to pull them asunder. I love the movement where the cello is occupied with repeating a single phrase while the others strike out on their own, three separate journeys that seem to suggest that each prefers, after all, the pain and pleasure of playing solo. But no. Each, near the end, swerves back to the path their friend has been plotting, and he receives them as if he never once suspected their loyalty. Would I be moved if I thought the music belonged to a world remote from this one? If it didn't seem instead to be making the point that a conversation like this is available at moments sufficiently free and self-forgetful? And at other moments... Maybe there's still a chance to participate in the silence of listeners who are glad for what they managed to bring to the music and for what they managed to take away. Famous. The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous, briefly, to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. 
The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. If you were suddenly put in charge of everything, made emperor, empress of the universe, what would be the first thing you would do? Does anybody want to offer some answers? <laughs> End war, I hear. Okay. Redistribute income and resources. Anything else? What? Death to ties? Deputize. Oh, very strategic thinker over there. Once a student of Confucius, the ancient Chinese teacher, asked him this question, and he responded by saying he would rectify names, make sure everything was called by its proper name. When I first read this, I immediately got the mental image of that ancient sage getting out a label maker and going all over the place, labeling things, and with what he thought that it should be called and instructing everyone to follow that instruction. And that isn't what he meant. He didn't want to dictate new labels, but to use precision in our language. We must call things by their correct names if we are going to have any hope of approaching the truth. One comparative religion scholar describes Confucius' interest in this rectification of names like this. If terms be not correct, language is not in accordance with the truth of things. Affairs cannot be carried out to success. Therefore, a superior person considers it necessary that the names he uses be spoken appropriately what the superior person requires is that, in his words, there be nothing that is incorrect. Confucius was especially interested in labeling relationships properly, making sure everyone knows the nature of the various relationships in their lives and the roles they are expected to play, the duty they are expected to fulfill. Confucius was interested in the nature of the various relationships we hold and in helping people do their duty and in so doing thrive, become more human. In the traditional Confucian system, there are five constant relationships that all must attend to. They are the relationships between ruler and subject, between father and son, between husband and wife, between elder brother and younger brother, and the relationship between friends. 
Just hearing this list, you are probably already noticing the ways that your life doesn't conform to this system. This system described in China about 2,500 years ago. There isn't a lot of room for women or gender non-conforming people. There's no mention of family patterns outside the traditional model. There's a lot of the teaching about relationships in Confucianism that seems hopelessly hierarchical and maybe irrelevant to our modern sensibilities. But there are ways that this model was and is transformative. Confucius taught that the people with more power in a relationship, the rulers, the fathers, the husbands, and the elder brothers, needed to wield that power carefully and responsibly. They needed to prove themselves worthy of the respect that their subjects, sons, wives, and younger brothers should show them. And in this, at its time, this was a radical idea. In some contexts, it still is today. So rather than focus on the parts of the teaching that, that I struggle with, I want to hold up what is of value. Confucius, in the teaching about the five constant relationships, names that our relationships with different people in differing roles need to be different our various relationships, we need to have a clear sense of our duty and what we can fairly expect of the other person or other people in relationship with us. Most of us have some sense of this intuitively. If we are parenting children at any stage in their development, we know that our relationships with them are fundamentally different than our friendships. We know that romantic partnerships and sibling relationships have a different set of obligations, joys, and challenges. And yet there are ways in which many of us could use a rectification of names for the relationships in our lives. I blame Facebook for all of this. The word friend has really changed its meaning with the advent of Facebook. At one point, if you called someone a friend, it meant you had a reciprocal, mutual relationship with some degree of affection and trust. You knew each other, at least. Um, and Facebook has changed that, at least among communities where a lot of people use that social networking website. On Facebook, as many of you know, you connect with other people by sending them a friend request. You then friend one another, Friend is now a verb, thanks to Facebook. And friend is the only connection on the site. There are ways to label and sort people into acquaintances and de designate who is family. But everyone is fundamentally a friend if you're connected. And every person we're connected to our, in our lives is decidedly not a friend. Through Facebook, I'm connected to hundreds of people and I would only call a small percentage of them friends. Just the people who know me well and with whom my relationship is reciprocal. Perhaps this is your story too. My Facebook connections, my Facebook friends, who aren't really friends, include family members, former coworkers, professional connections, mentors, acquaintances, people I went to elementary school with that I have not spoken to in decades, and all sorts of other people. And some of these are people are very important to me, but they're not friends. They are family members or part of my professional network or my mentors or something else. These relationships have different expectations and obligations than friendships do. 
just for one example of how this redefinition of friends can sometimes get us into trouble, I'm friends with many of you on Facebook. And my relationship with you all and you individually is precious and rich and valuable, but they're not friendships. Our relationship can be marked by affection, and many of them are, but they are by design not reciprocal. And that is part of the power of the relationship between a minister and people in the congregation. In pastoral care, in worship, and in other areas of church life, I hope to offer you support and inspiration and bits of wisdom now and again without expecting that in return necessarily. The hope is what happens here inspires you all to be of service to the church and the world, to live lives that are more meaningful. But it's not about giving anything back. I don't expect each of you to preach a sermon to me in the coming week, thank goodness. And that's really the beauty of this special not-friendship, other relationship. I struggled with this a bit on the way into the ministry and talked about it with a mentor. And she offered this example of how ministerial relationships are different than friendships. She told me that a member of the church can set up an appointment with a minister to complain about their job and seek support if they want, if that's what they need. And if the minister was setting up appointments with people in the church to complain about their jobs, (laughs) there'd be something really wrong at that church. So to make my relationships and with all of you work, I find that support in other places when I need to complain or when I need to process. And I have friends, especially other religious leaders, who are a great help with this, who understand this weird job that I have. So none of this is to say that I don't have great personal affection for many, most, sometimes all of you, collectively and individually but it's a different relationship. And knowing that and understanding that is important. We do all of our relationships a disservice when we do not see them with all their nuance and gradation, we do not, when we do not recognize the strengths of connection and levels of reciprocity, when we call everything a friendship. I'm not suggesting we adapt the hierarchical models of Confucianism instead, but I think Being in conversation with this other way of being has much to teach us. And our relationships matter. Confucians tell us that there is no such thing as a solitary person. We are because of our relationships, as our choir sang so beautifully. In the Analects, the collected teachings of Confucius, it is written, the master said, virtue is never solitary. It always has neighbors. Last week, I spoke about how a key part of the Confucian project is developing virtues, learning to be a good person. And this learning happens in relationship. Some of the commentary on the statement that virtue always has neighbors is that you need to have good neighbors in order to be a good person. You need that group of people striving together. Goodness however you might define it, is not a solitary project. We all need all of us to make it. And if we are to become virtuous, flourishing, humane people, that will only happen if we have people around us committed to that effort as well. A 
contemporary Confucian updates this idea. Tu Weiming says that self-transformation is a communal act, which is a powerful idea. We're sometimes used to thinking about learning and growing and transforming ourselves as something we do by ourselves. And Confucianism tells us that is not the way it is. It is in the context of our relationships that we grow and change and become the best versions of ourselves. We need to be together to become fully human. We do this here, or we attempt to do this here, and I hope we all have relationships beyond these walls that help us grow and change and self-transform. When we delve into Taoism in February, we will explore a tradition that has grown up alongside and in opposition to Confucianism in China that presents a very different, also very compelling vision of people becoming their best selves. In Taoism, you're supposed to just walk away from everything, all the trappings of society and the bindings of relationship. But for now, we're going to linger on this Confucian idea that we become our best selves alongside one another when we attend to the important relationships in our lives. This idea that we are individuals only because we are collectively and our liberation is closely linked with others' liberation is an idea that exists all over, not just in Confucian cultures. Last Sunday, in his video talking about our Burundian Unitarian Universalist siblings' experience as refugees, Reverend Fulgence spoke of Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is a com- concept common among speakers of Bantu languages in South, Central, and East Africa. It is translated as I am because we are, or a person is a person through other people. To be human, we need one another. We need community, we need connection. There is no such thing as a solitary person. Another approach to this idea is biological metaphors. I read a poem earlier about ants that spoke of how the collective thrives when each individual plays their role. Poet and physician Lewis Thomas uses another insect to make a similar observation. He writes, there's nothing at all wonderful about a single solitary termite. Indeed, there really is no such creature, functionally speaking, as a lone termite, any more than we can imagine a genuinely solitary human being. No such thing. Two or three termites gathered together on a dish are not much better. They may move about and touch each other nervously, but nothing happens. They keep adding more and more termites until they reach a critical mass, and then the miracle begins. As though they had suddenly received a piece of extraordinary news, they organize in platoons and begin stacking up pellets to precisely the right height, then turning the arches to connect the columns, colony constructing the cathedral and its chambers in which they will live out its life for decades ahead. Air-conditioned and humidity-controlled, following the chemical blueprint coded in their genes. Flawlessly, stone-blind. They are not the dense mass of individual insects they appear to be. They are an organism, a thoughtful, meditative brain on a million legs. And I am not going to claim that we humans are like the termites that sometimes operate as one brain with a million legs. 
But there are times when that feels close to true. There are times when we gather to offer comfort or celebrate or accomplish a great task that we could not accomplish alone, where we feel, maybe in moments, like one organism, moments when our lofty ideal of the interdependent web of all existence feels real and tangible and present. There were moments of that yesterday at the bazaar. There were moments of that all week as people asked how they might comfort the Bulmer family. And then when so many people I contacted to coordinate the memorial service, logistics said, yes, I can do that. I will show up. Earlier today, we sang, there is a love holding us. There is a love holding all that we love. There is a love holding all. We rest in this love. My heart and my experience tell me there's of the existence of a love greater than all of us. And some of you, the ones who like precision in their language, the ones Confucianism would, Confucius would appreciate, have asked me if this lyric is about God or about community or what exactly. And my answer is yes. For me, for me personally, it is about both. And the power of the song is we can each bring our own interpretations to it. That's what's great about a good song or a good metaphor. My heart and my experience tell me that love is made real through the actions of kind, generous, and loving people. When we are at our best, our relationships, our families, our friendships, our congregations, our workplaces can be an opportunity for love to flow into the world and for all of us to know we are held, we are beloved, and we can rest for a time if that is what we need. Joy and woe are woven fine, and we are connected in a garment of mutuality, a web of relationship and of love. We are love's hands and love's feet, love's voice and love's vision. May it be so. May we continue to make it so. And amen.